Okay, listen to this. My portfolio has returned 121%. It has a compounded average growth rate of 38%. It has a sharp ratio of 1.392, a maximum drawdown of 14.3%, and a correlation to the S&P 500 of 0.332. In this episode, I will discuss what a track record is, the importance of having a solid track record, and what makes a good one. I'll also discuss some mistakes that I've made by not being intentional with building my track record. For this episode, I want to appropriate a well-known quote. The best time to build a track record was 20 years ago, and the second best time is now. So if you haven't built a track record yet, please pay attention to this episode. Hi, I'm Laron. And you're listening to Billion Dollar Algorithms Podcast, a podcast where I document the process of starting a quantitative hedge fund from scratch. If you want to hear all the episodes, you can follow us on Spotify or head over to BillionDollarAlgorithms.com. Now let's get into today's episode. I started this podcast to document the journey of starting a quantitative hedge fund from scratch with no connections, network or anything. I want to be as transparent as possible so we can learn together and potentially grow together. Anything I say in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. This is just some guy's story on a pursuit of happiness or something like that. But thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Let's start off with the basics. What is a track record? A track record is a report of your trading performance over time. Many investors see a track record as a vital part of investing in new talent or hedge fund managers. If you're looking to raise funds for your, for your trading activities or maybe become a hedge fund some manager someday, having a solid track record is paramount. Think of it like your report card. It will show how well your portfolio have performed over time and more importantly, what was the worst performance you've had over the same period of time. You could also think of it like a Carfax report. Imagine you're going to buy a used car from a very upstanding used car salesman. They tell you this is the best thing on the lot, and you have a great sense in cars for picking this car. You don't believe him, so you ask him for a report on the car. If you've bought a car before, you kind of know what you want to look for. You're one looking to for the mileage, the service records, and more importantly, does the car have a clean title? Has it been in any accidents or any floods um, or water damage? Despite what the used car salesman told you, Unless you see the report, you're probably not going to buy the car, right? So, your track record is exactly like this. Eventually, you want to pitch your portfolio to investors, and they see you just like a used car salesman. Don't take it personal, though. You shouldn't really expect people to give you millions of dollars just off of blind trust. This isn't an NFT marketplace. Anyway, investors are going to say, show me your track record. And once they have your track record and they've dissected it, maybe they'll give you a call back. Now that you know what a track record is, what should you include in your track record report? Generally, you want to include metrics that are familiar and informative. If you use very exotic metrics in your track record and do not include the common metrics, this could be easily seen as a red flag because maybe you're trying to hide something that a common metric would easily show an investor. Some common metrics that your track record can include are the compound annual growth rate, your net return, your maximum drawdown, your sharp ratio, your correlation to the SPY or S&P 500 index, your best and worst months, your monthly return table, your assets under management, and maybe an equity chart. 
Now, this doesn't mean that a specific investor may not ask for additional metrics, but this is just a good baseline to start from. Investors use this track record to get an understanding of how your portfolio performs. By looking at an equity curve, you can determine if this portfolio is a trend-following portfolio or a mean-reverting portfolio. By the sharp drawdowns in the equity curve, an investor can also tell how your portfolio responds to shocks and how well you manage risk. From the drawdown, your maximum drawdown, they can understand how much drawdown that you've seen in your portfolio. Generally, investors seem to double the drawdown. So if you had a 10% drawdown in your uh, track record, they'll most likely um, estimate a 20% drawdown because they expect that you're going to see a higher drawdown level uh, in the future. Now, drawdowns is a very tricky thing because live trading is going to have drawdowns, but um, a lot of retail investors seem to not realize that drawdowns is a part of the business or a part of running a portfolio. With that being said, you do want to keep your drawdowns in check. So drawdown levels higher than 50% is definitely a red flag. But keeping your drawdowns below 20% and even below 15% is always a good way to stay in the good graces of many investors. And this also really depends on your returns that you generated on that drawdown. Now, going to your returns, um, I think many retail investors kind of overweight what returns mean, but to investors, and when I say investors, I'm talking about people who would seed a hedge fund, and I'm not specifically talking about institutional investors, because institutional investors have uh, much stricter requirements on these metrics in your track record. So I'm generally talking about um, investors that would allocate to a emerging manager or a small um, hedge fund manager, small being under $100 million. Typically, institutional investors wouldn't even look at somebody that doesn't have $100 million under management. And so when I'm saying investor, these are the people I'm talking about. Anyway, going back to the returns. Now, by looking at the returns, an investor can understand what to expect or what is typical from your portfolio. And ironically, returns that are too high are not really a good thing. Keeping returns between 10 to 20% a year is pretty good for the average um, hedge fund investor. And if your numbers are above 30 to 50%, most investors will assume that you're taking on a little bit too much risk to make these trades, or you're gambling, or even worse, you just got lucky. So they will think that you're just on a winning streak based on some luck, and eventually you will fail just as hard and fast as you were coming up. So we want to make sure that our returns are quote-unquote good, but not too good to a point where we scare off a few investors by thinking, by making them think that we're taking on a lot of risk. Now, returns that are too low really won't excite most investors. And so posting returns of 1% to 10%, you know, wouldn't really make them look at you favorably. They'll most likely look elsewhere, depending on what they're actually looking at you for. They may actually look at you for um, a hedge against the S&P 500 or other um, assets that they're investing in. So that is also another factor here. But generally, returns that are a little bit too low will not excite many investors, especially if you're an emerging manager or a small uh, hedge fund manager. The next metric is the compound annual growth rate. And this is the rate of return that would be required for an investment to grow from its beginning balance to its ending balance, assuming that the profits were reinvested at the end of each period of the investment's lifespan. 
Now that is read specifically and directly off of Investopedia to ensure that I'm saying the most accurate information here. Now, um, I understand the compound annual growth rate as essentially some formula that smooths out the return of your um, portfolio over the period of time, um, that over the length of time of your portfolio. Now, investors could use the compound annual growth rate to essentially compare a few um, alternative investment sources. So, for example, the S&P 500 have compounded at a rate of 10% um, annually. And essentially, with that compounding 10% annually from 1950, that is the metric that, in many ways, we have to beat. We have to beat that compound annual growth rate. And so, if you are a little bit below that, um, investors would definitely look elsewhere for an alternative investment stream. The next metric to include in your track record is the return to drawdown ratio. This metric starts to incorporate some risk metrics into your portfolio, and it essentially determines how well your portfolio performed given its maximum drawdown. Many, many um, people use the maximum drawdown for this ratio. This shows how much you've lost versus how much you've gained. And I think it's pretty intuitive. Um, numbers that are below one would have a hard time to being considered because you essentially mean that you've lost more than you've returned. And numbers between one and two are pretty much quote unquote good numbers. Um, numbers between two and three is kind of a sweet spot. And three to four are surely some ways to get anyone's attention. And a return to drawdown ratio above four, I believe, is somewhat of a holy grail. So essentially, if you um, think about this intuitively, it means that you've returned four times what you've lost in your maximum drawdown. Now, obviously, the asterisk here is how long your track record is, because if your track record is two months long and you have a return to drawdown ratio of four, it's not really going to garner that much attention. But if your track record is 10 years long and you have a return to drawdown ratio of four, then we understand that you've managed your risk very well and you've returned a significant amount. Now, <laughs> another thing is, you know, this is a fraction, right? This is a ratio. And um, if your return is 2%, you know, it's not going to be that exciting regardless. But all of these things must be looked at holistically and in a very comprehensive view. But the return to the drawdown ratio is something I even use um, in my portfolio and in my um, strategy development. The next metric to include in your track record is a very uh, contentious metric in the world of quantitative analysis and investment. Um, it is the Sharpe Ratio. And a Sharpe Ratio is a measure of how much risk you take on to generate these returns. Um, it also take into, takes into account the portfolio, portfolio volatility and measures it against a non-volatile assets like treasury bills. You could debate whether the Sharpe Ratio is a good metric for your portfolio or not, but guess what? The people who are allocating funds look at Sharpe Ratio, so I'm sorry, you're going to have to suck it up. Anyways, Sharpe Ratios above 1 are necessary to be taken seriously, but like I've said before, not every number you have to maximize. If your Sharpe Ratio is around 5, most investors would run away from you. Some may even show you around to their friends as a joke. <laughs> Others may even bet on when you'll fail, this year or the next. Um, historically, high Sharpe ratio systems degrade over time, and quite dramatically. 
So ensure that you're not trying to build portfolios with maximum sharp ratios. Just you know, avoid, avoid this mistake. Um, I would say that realistically, a sharp ratio from one to two is pretty good. I think um, if you have a sharp ratio of above 1.5, obviously you're in better to ter territory um, as a portfolio performance. But definitely um, do some research and history on you know firms that have sharp ratios that are dramatically high. They typically make headlines when they go bust. Anyway, next metric is the correlation to the S&P 500. Now, as a retail trader, I really did not pay too much attention to this because, you know, I'm not I'm here to make returns and I'm here to generate income for myself. I'm not really paying attention to the correlation to the S&P 500. But if we want to get a little bit more professional, we do have to pay attention to our correlation to the S&P 500 because this tells the investor, you know, very intuitively how correlated you are to this uh, to the general stock market. If you're highly correlated to the general stock market, investors would rather invest in the general stock market and not you. Also, it shows that your profit stream isn't really a hedge against a downturn in the market. So that's not good for the investor either. Now, I find it uh, pretty interesting that in statistics, there's so many ways to determine the correlation between um, you know, a few data sets, but essentially an R squared uh, test is good enough in finance to determine the correlation here. And if you understand R squared values, you know that they range with, from zero to one theoretically, and any value above 0 0.5 shows some correlation. Values above 0 0.8 show significant correlation, and values below 0 0.5 show little correlation, and values below 0 0.3 shows no significant correlation. Those are the scientific terms. Um, of uh, significance in statistics. Anyway, you want values that are below 0.5 and preferably close to 0.3. You really don't want to be too correlated to the S&P 500 if you want to sell your portfolio to an investor as something that is uncorrelated to the S&P 500 and a good stream of profits. Okay, you've done all of that and you have a track record with metrics that are right for any investor. What's next? And more importantly, where is the Lambo? Now, the two important things about your track record aren't even related to performance, believe it or not. And they are the length of time that this track record existed for and your assets under management. These are not byproducts of your system and your trading activities and it has nothing to do with how smart you are. They, but they do say a lot about the pedigree of a person and the resiliency of this future hedge fund manager or future re recipient of an investor's money. Think about it this way. If you can raise a million dollars or more for your hedge fund or your trading activities before you reach an investor, then obviously you have some talent, some richness or rich friends and family to give you money already, which means you've already sold someone on your dream. Even better if the million dollars came from you. Investors would like to know that you have skin in the game, and if you put up a million dollars of your money behind your algorithms or your portfolio, that's a lot of conviction, and it's a signal of confidence for investors. The next important metric is really the length of time that your track record existed for. 
The length of time in the market shows how well you can manage the day-to-day, -day, and more importantly, how do you deal with the extremes. If your portfolio survived 2008 and 2020 and still posts good returns, then investors would gladly entertain investing with you. But if you blew up in 2008 and 2020, then what's really the point in talking to you? Investors can blow up their own account on their own and probably save some performance fees by doing so. Also, if you survive these extraneous events, it shows that your portfolio can take a shock and isn't highly leveraged like many other portfolios are. Try to put yourself in the investor's shoes. The worst thing for an investor is that they put their money into some highly leveraged portfolio and when a market shock happens, they lose all their money. Investors would really want to have a grasp on what is the worst thing that can happen in your system and your portfolio. And you should be able to answer this confidently and correctly. So, let's talk about the minimum AUM and track record that's necessary to be very convincing to the general audience of investors. Now, I do understand that we now have to try to convince people that our portfolio is robust and sound and worthy of their money. Now, hopefully, by looking at the numbers in our track record, the numbers would just jump out at them as something worth investing in. Now, that is a hypothetical. Typically, that doesn't really happen, and you're still going to have to do a little bit of convincing and storytelling. But anyway, let's talk about your length of track record and your assets under management. Now, if you're a quant and you're trading FX or Forex like me, I think um, talking to some investors, $100,000 to $500,000 is a very reasonable size to start with as a incubated hedge fund. A track record of around two to five years, in my opinion, would be very convincing. And this is because the forex market is a global market. And two to five years give you enough time to capture many election cycles around the world. Uh, FOMC meetings, Fed meetings, geopolitical issues, and any market shock that may happen. Some uh, geopolitical event, a war, uh, a pandemic. And all of these things that affect the forex market cycle. Also, trading... Um, $100,000 to $500,000 is a good size because the forex market is very liquid and you can show quite easily that this system can at least be traded at that scale. And many people know that the forex market is one of the more liquid markets in the world um, and liquidity isn't really much of an issue. Now, it also depends on your um, trading style, but that's another story for another day. So you magically have all of these metrics on your track record uh, report and you have a good AUM and you have a long uh, history of trading. What's next now? Can investors give you money now and, and should money be pouring into you? Generally, no, because investors are gonna ask you even more questions and a few more kinks are gonna have to be worked out before they actually allocate funds to you. Investors will now ask, are these returns audited? Did you perform all of this trading in a trusted regulated broker? What is the leverage that you're using? And if you get past those questions, they're most likely gonna ask you next, where are you located? What are the tax benefits of lo your location? Who is your fund manager? And other things that may hinder your capital raising process if you do it too early. But those things are a bit down the line and some time when I get to that point, I'll be able to address those a little bit better. But the point is, you want to understand these questions that will, that investors will ask you. And you should prepare your documents and your portfolio ahead of time to be able to quickly and confidently answer these questions. Okay, I'm going to now try to put this into one cohesive statement that I wish that I heard 
before I started this journey. Investors are looking for profit streams that are uncorrelated to the S&P 500 with a return to drawdown ratio higher than 2 and returns that are higher than 10% compounded on an, on an annual basis. With performance that has been done in an audited account and a track record that's longer than two years, trading assets larger than $100,000 and maybe even $100 million for institutional investors. Hopefully that you're trading in liquid markets with low leverage and using low risk as dictated by the Sharpe ratio being above one and below two. Now, that's a lot. And investors do ask a lot from um, professional hedge funds. And this is why they are the professionals. And trying to get from the retail space to the professional space requires the manager or the would-be manager to really reconfigure the way you think about these things. So now re me reconfiguring this, I have to understand that this is what investors are looking for. And this is the bare minimum. Okay, I've traded my portfolio of algorithms for longer than two and a half years now. And my prop firm accounts meet the criteria for being above $100,000. But along the way, I had a few challenges with these accounts. And I think that this is a good learning lesson because there are two mistakes that I've made that retail traders may be making in trying to build their track record. The first mistake is using prop firm accounts. And the second mistake is using multiple personal accounts. So first with the prop firm accounts, using prop firm accounts isn't a good way to build a track record because most of them use demo accounts. If you've traded with prop firms long enough, you'd realize that you're actually trading on a demo. And if you're on a challenge, ver verification, or even a live trading phase, you're still going to be on a demo account. Now, these prop firms use their discretion on when or how they actually copy your trades from a demo account onto their, onto their live accounts. But regardless, you are trading on a demo account. So investors aren't going to respect the track record you build under these demo accounts. Um, the next thing is, prop firms will update your accounts randomly and without any notice. So what ends up happening is, you get a new account and the history of the old account is wiped away whenever they do a quote unquote update or a new offering. Um, this has happened to me many times um, over my stint of trading these prop firm accounts. And generally, I didn't really think much of it. You know, it's just, you get a new login and you just continue trading. But if you're trying to build one cohesive um, track record off of one account, you see how this is now an issue. The next mistake is the multiple personal accounts. Now, multiple personal accounts is really a thing that I think many retail traders do. And for me, as a retail trader, uh, we have different goals. We have a small amount of capital, and so we want to maximize capital efficiency and get the most out of every trade. This leads us to doing things like getting high leverage brokers, brokerage accounts, and taking positions that are destined to wipe out any account if it goes wrong, and essentially gambling. While I didn't do all of these things, I did hop around to different accounts as I tried to gain the trust of different brokers while searching for higher leverage. I ended up having accounts with FX Choice, Traders Way, Game Capital, or Forex.com. And FX Choice gave me, I think, 1 to 1,000 leverage on Forex trading and allowed me to fund my accounts with crypto. 
And Traders Way basically gave me the same terms. I think I also had an account that was one to five hundred leverage. And again, funding my account with crypto offshore that was a pretty a good pretty good way for me to dispose of some of my crypto. Um, anyway, next was Gain Capital. Now I use Gain Capital because they were a respectable broker that's in the U.S., but their leverage was one to five, one to fifty, uh, one to fifty leverage, and so it was definitely the lower leverage of the brokers that I was using. However, because they were trusted, I ended up putting more of my funds with them, more so than the other brokers. Now, as I said before, the trade-off is that it's the smallest leverage. Now, I think, again, I got lucky because I chose this broker because it was respectable. And, you know, turns out it is respectable in the industry uh, with hedge funds as well as being regulated. And that was luck. You know, it wasn't intentional. It was just luck. So I want to uh, preface this or at least... Um, Use this as a forewarning for many people who want to build a respectable track record. You know, you do want to use a respectable and regulated broker. And yes, you're going to be using much less leverage because of that. But you have to think of the long term. Yeah. So here's a silver lining and another way that I got lucky. So because I was essentially lazy in managing my proper accounts, I would use one account as a master account and just copy trades to my other Proform accounts. So when I was done with a Proform challenge, for example, and the Proform moved my account from challenge to a verification phase, my master account would just copy trades to that new account. Easy peasy. By doing this, I ended up unintentionally building a track record on my master account. <laughs> and regardless of the accounts that were being traded live, my master account always did the trades. And again, this was pure luck. Anyway, now that that civil lining is addressed, let's see what my track record is and how I performed over this period of time. My portfolio has returned 121%. It has a compounded average growth rate of 38%. It has a sharp ratio of 1.392, a maximum drawdown of 14.3%, and a correlation to the S&P 500 of 0.332. It also has a return to drawdown ratio in, of 8.7. And this portfolio has survived COVID, vaccine news, a US election, wars in Ukraine, and even January 6th, and all of these market events that was shocking in the last two and a half years. And by any metric, and by all of the metrics that we discussed in this podcast, this is very good performance, and I applaud my algorithms for performing so well. I always like to take credit for my algorithms. It's almost like I'm a, a parent, you know, because I have no idea how it could perform so well and how it did perform so well. I'm just very proud of these algorithms as a, as the, you know, they're my first children. And being the proud parent I am, you want the best for your children. And so I really do want to legitimize these algorithms and my work in a fund and i think that this performance motivates me to continue on this path in trying to do so now the only asterisk here is that the assets under management is very small you know my assets under management is very small and it's difficult to audit these uh this track record because of me using all of these proper accounts and before i didn't really realize that this would be this issue you know you use the proper accounts to generate funds and uh but in doing so, 
and by using their accounts, you're not actually generating a track record. And so which one do you really value? <laughs> you know, um, do you want to generate the funds or do you want to generate a track record? And I really do need both. And this is, you know, just another step in the direction of where I want to get to another hurdle or roadblock to overcome. But, you know, if I had taken the Bitcoin from that Nigerian prince, maybe I would have had the, the capital to build this track record on. Now, the next step for me is raising 100000 to $500,000 of capital and putting it in a trusted broker to produce these returns that can be audited at the highest of financial standards. And once I do this for the next two and a half years, I should be prepared to start my fund, right? Simple. <laughs> now, the elephant in the room is obviously, how would you get $100,000. So how am I going to get this money? <laughs> I'm at the slot machines for the third time this week. I'm going to get this money. 